This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Imaho, ho, ho. Imaho is called the shortest Dzogchen teaching. It's, it's really weak to translate such exclamatory words. It's like trying to translate a word like uh, Eureka or hey. But when it's translated, it means or it suggests it's a, a wondrous or wonderful, miraculous, amazing. I'm talking about Imaho, not Eureka. Imaho, it often is seen in the beginning or end of spontaneous songs of enlightenment, dohas or vajra songs. Imaho ngotsu sanje that kind of thing. It's like amazing. The Western Pure Land is here and now, not later, after sunset in the West, and so forth. So it's a great teaching of wonderment, which is one of the main um, emphasis or principles or like a special source of Dzogchen. Ah is considered the shortest Mahayana Sutra. I'm not exaggerating. Scholars will tell you, if they know their biz, that of the 100,000 verses of Prajnaparamita Sutra and the 22,000 verse Prajnaparamita Wisdom Sutra and the 8,000 verse Prajnaparamita Wisdom Sutra version and the one-page Heart Sutra Wisdom Sutra version, that the shortest Mahayana Sutra in Sanskrit is the Ah Sutra. Needless to say, we want to know what's in it. I already told you. Ah. That is the essence of Prajnaparamita, or Transcendental Wisdom Prajna, Innate Gnosis Prajna. The wisdom I open, seeing things as they is, not as they ain't. Seeing things as they are, not as we would like them to be. The sixth Paramita, or Transcendental Virtue, Panacean Virtue of the Bodhisattva, the Awakener, or the Buddha to be. Imaho, wondrous, that's the spirit of Dzogchen practicing, as I said yesterday, the Tibetan master said, like this, like a bird electrified on a wire. Ah! It's a very short but intense, awakeful moment before being burned to a crisp and just falling. But that's the idea. Not carrying on, not reifying, not using crazy glue of concepts and memory and selfing to make a bead, a moment, into a rosary by stringing it all together with concepts, memory, selfing, naming and forming, and so forth. But just, ah, ah, that, this moment, the only moment, as it says in the pithy instructions. Ah. So practicing in that spirit and wondrous, 
amazing. What the hell? Rather know it all, seen that before. What's next? What's new? We want more advanced Dzogchen next. That's a sad statement. So Imho is a, a great practice, a teaching, a reminder, fun, and everything else. Lightening, <clears throat> loosening, and illumining at the same time. So we've been practicing all week according to the view, meditation, and action, which is the ground or the fundamental of the basis which is the path, the pathless path, and which leads to the fruit or result of the great perfection as we've studied the framework, the glimpse, seeing things as they are, the breakthrough, the introduction or recognition of our true nature, seeing it as it is, recognition, glimpse, leading to the non-meditation of getting used to seeing it as it is and leaving it as it is. That's the non-meditation as Ogchen, the great allowing, the great equanimity, the great one taste. Naturally, segueing into as needed action. If there's no wind, the ocean doesn't wave. When there's wind, there's waves. So naturally leading to unobstructed, uninhibited, spontaneous responsiveness, compassion and action and so on, according to the bodhisattva way, the ten panacean virtues or parameters of the bodhisattva, etc. So view meditation and action, view like the sky, meditation like the mountain and ocean, inexhaustible like the ocean waves as needed, proactive, spontaneous, ego-free Buddha activity, not just reactive, karmic, egocentric activity. So today we get to the action as we're leaving. We've mostly, um, we're at the end of our week, tomorrow's our last day, as we think about, as we get ready to I mean, we still have a whole day here to rest in the view, nothing more to do. Clear seeing, the first step on the Eightfold Path, etc. But now we talk a little bit about action, not just sitting there and doing nothing, which sometimes might seem like fiddling while Rome burns. We don't want that. There's enough of that going on already, and Rome is burning, if you haven't noticed, outside, or the news. I mean, not here, here it's five below, but Rome is burning with global warming, terrorism, and all the other problems and, and injustices and difficult situations of our world. And also innerly, not just be sitting here and trying to stop thinking or feel better momentarily while Rome burns, while our calatias and obscurations continuing to fester, burn, or leak, leak, leak away our wholeness, as we discussed yesterday, kalatia, sometimes translated as defilements, obscurations, conflicting emotions, kalatias, defy poisons, kalatias, also called the leaks. Not just fiddling away while Rome leaks or while Venice sinks, maybe that's a better image. So naturally action, also when we leave here bring it back into life. So today's subject is the action of the great perfection. We've mostly concentrated on view and the meditation of non-meditation this week. So action, conduct, activity, enacting, actualizing. What word should we use for chippa? Entering into the activity that flow, the natural, spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity of the great perfection, the bodhisattva way, etc. Being there while getting there every step of the way. So we could talk about it from the point of view of the path of many lifetimes towards full enlightenment, bring all beings to enlightenment in the gradual teachings in Mahayana Buddhism in general, like all religious paths, mostly generally delivering deliverance later, bringing people, developing, becoming better people and contributing to a better world and so on, of course. We could talk about that and the 10 Bhumis and levels of the Bodhisattva leading to Buddhahood and the Eightfold Path, and I have a whole book on that, as you know, Awakening the Buddha Within, or the Ten Paramitas, the Ten Bodhisattva Virtues. There's another whole book. I mean, my books like workbooks. I recommend them to you when you're ready, if you like to read those things, or just read the Table of Continents, as I call it. 
the 10 parameters, the 10 panacean virtues, 10 transformative practices, paramita in Sanskrit original language, Sanskrit or parami in Pali, panacean virtue of generosity, ethical morality and self-discipline, patient, forbearance, effort, enthusiastic effort, meditation and concentration, mindfulness, six wisdom, prajna, and the um, auxiliary four, adding up the 10, skillful means and method, power, empowerment, aspiration or resolve, and authentic presence. Ten parameters, you can read about it, one chapter in each in that book, Buddha's as Buddha does, the ten transformative practices for enlightened living. But let's talk about it more from like how we're going to practice when we leave here and integrate Dharma into daily life, a more practical. Of course, it's, it's both hard and easy to meditate and to practice here. We have a supportive environment. We use the tried and true ancient monastic training, cloistered, silent, vegetarian, teetotaling, silent, noble, silent, intensive monastic training model of the Eastern tradition of Buddhism, Hindus, and yogic traditions to provide a safe container, a conducive atmosphere. So in one way, it's hard to meditate all day, but we break it up in sessions, and we also have chanting and yoga, and of course, meals and rests and breaks and nature walk time and so on, and singing and chanting at night, etc. So many people say it's harder to get here than to stay here. And they don't want to leave. Even in our 100-day retreats, in our Texas retreat center, people used to say that it was so hard to take three and a half months off and get here and plan it and get here. But now that I'm here, this is, wow, I don't want to leave. This is great. Probably because there's everyone, you know, people are cooking and cleaning and shopping for us. We don't have to do anything. But I don't know. I don't like to plumb too deeply. I just take it at face value. Great. If it's great, I love it too. I came up through the retreat tradition. Works for me. This is the way to do it. I don't know how people do it with kids and jobs and trying to put in some practice every morning before they make breakfast and go to work or whatever, or at night after a long day and putting the kids down, as they say. I love it. I always say this, I have so much respect for people in our Vajrayana tradition who do their nundro and their hundreds of thousands of practices every morning before they go to work. I did it in India and it took me many years and starting and stopping to do it and it, it was a lot easier there and I didn't have work and I didn't go anywhere and I didn't have a family life and so on. And there were a lot of other people going like this too under the Bodhi tree where Buddha sat and it was like hard not to do it. What's, what's he doing sitting there reading his junk books under the Bodhi tree, you know, near the Bodhi tree? So the current was there. So I have so much respect for people who, who practice these things in the West in, in ordinary life, lay life. So how do we bring this into our daily life? Of course, we could talk about it as everybody does today, popular, the stock of mindfulness is rising, integrating mindfulness into every activity, mindful work and mindful yoga and mindful exercise and mindful writing. You can see books, teachings, workshops on this. Mindful divorce, mindful this, mindful that. <coughs> of course, yes, that's how. Enough said. No. If it's enough said for you, fine. But we're a little complicated, so things could be a little more complicated. If we were simple, things could be very simple. One was simple. Yes cultivating, applying mindfulness rather than mindlessness to every part of our life, yes. And bringing loving kindness, compassion, and these Buddhist, really universal, humanistic, heartfelt values and ethics into every aspect of life, at home, at work, and in between, of course. And even further, seeing the light, the Buddha-ness, the Buddha nature, the divine in everyone and everything, yes. Yes, that's how. That's enough said, if we can, if we're that simple. 
But most of us, we need a little more prodding and structure, and perhaps we need a group to go and sit with every morning or every once a week. So we recommend we have Dzogchen sitting groups. And there are other groups you can go to. Also, we recommend daily practice every morning, every night, whenever your time is. Daily practice. Make a place where you do it so you don't have to set it up every time. If you routinize your time and place, that will help a lot, bringing your meditation home. When people leave here, I'm talking mostly to those of you who haven't been to a lot of retreats, you know what happens. We vow, we wish, we think we'll meditate and keep on like this when we go home. Maybe not, we won't sit for an hour or half an hour, we'll just do it for 15 minutes. It's so easy to find 15 minutes in the day. Yes, it is, it could be. Try to routinize it, it'll happen a lot more often. And then it will inform the rest of your day. So daily-ish personal spiritual practice, very important. And perhaps group practice, it's hard to do this alone. Not that you have to be a joiner, but just hear what I'm saying. And a little spiritual study and practice, very helpful. It's very hard to practice or meditate or do yoga, really do anything if we don't learn how. A little learning can go a long way, but let's not just stay at the information and learning stage. Let's actually experience, practice, apply it, integrate it and rock it, make it part of ourselves and our lives. <clears throat> so I hope when you leave here, you'll take it home and you know what's good, what you find useful. If you like chanting, there's many ways to do it with others or alone or in the shower or listening to chants on your you know, your modern devices, which I don't even know the names of on your, you know, CD Walkmans or whatever you have. <laughs> chant along. You know, I have a chant CD, Chance to Awaken the Buddhist Heart, with all the chants we do on in this retreat, you can listen to and chant along. I, I listen to chants and chant along in the car. Not just these Tibetan chants, Krishna Das, Deva Pramal, whoever. <laughs> Singing is believing. I love chanting. It's good for the soul. Gets me out of my head. So many reasons. We've talked about this. You know if it's good for you. So taking it home and into your life, not just waiting for the weekend when you have time or for the morning when you can sit in your meditation seat or your meditation room or, you know, get free. The Muslims seem to stop five times a day and put out their prayer mats and bow to Mecca. How good would it be if we st stopped five times a day, sat down, and had a minute or three of mindfulness or whatever our practice is five times a day? It would perforate the solidity of a claustrophobic day and remind us and inform the rest of the day. And even more so, moments of mindfulness. Anytime you can breathe, relax, and smile, you can say, ah, men mentally or verbally, when you're waiting at the elevator, stuck at a red light or in traffic or whatever, just ah, and drop into it, the view, meditation, and non-action right in your car seat, right there standing there with your briefcase chained to your wrist at the elevator or whoever you are, whatever you're doing. Ah, moments of mindfulness perforate the solidity of a claustrophobic closing in day. Let's the fresh air of awareness, of spirit, of presence blow through. So bring it into daily life, into every wrinkle and cranny of daily life. Not just waiting till you can come to another retreat or next time your lama or somebody visits your city. You can also go online, obviously, and click and hear and see and find many things today. I don't need to tell you. Once, when I lived in Darjeeling, India in the 70s, at Kala Rinpoche's monastery and next door to Drukchen Rinpoche's monastery in Darjeeling, I asked the very old Lama Tupton, who had walked out of Tibet, as the Tibetan refugees did, almost entirely walked out of Tibet in 59 when the Chinese communists invaded there. I asked him, how did you make it through the Himalayas without maps, compasses, not to mention sleeping bag, you know, North Face sleeping bags, tents, backpacks, 
sterno stoves, and down booties, etc. flashlights, etc. You know, I won't even mention GPS or whatever, cell phones, you know, whatever we have today. This was in the 70s I was talking to him. He came out in 59, like so many of the, the Dalai Lama and Tibetans. How did you make it through the Himalayas? How did you walk all the way to India through the Himalayas from Tibet? He said, one step at a time. That's the message of the path. The Chinese say the journey of a thousand miles begins beneath your feet. The next step. That's the goal. Make this step, next step, the only step. And of course, in this practice, not even leaning forward that much. But remember, now we're talking about the action and the bodhisattva and continuous integrating spirituality into the path of daily life. So we are now in motion, even though we're not really leaving our Buddha seat. In Dzogchen meditation, leaning back into the moment, not leaning forward into the present, the next step. But now we're talking about action. So flowing, riding the crest of the wave of nowness every moment. Uninhibited, non-resisting, yet very aware. Balanced, attentive, non-resisting, and very aware. So one step at a time. Uh, recently, somebody was in uh, Sikkim or maybe Tibet visiting the great elders of Chen Master Dodrup Chen Rinpoche, the great Ningtig Master Dodrup Chen Rinpoche, who is approaching 90 and is so well known for so many years, such a great master, comes to Massachusetts every other year to his center in West Hawley, the Mahasiddha Center, if you live near there, northwestern Massachusetts. He's a great master. Doesn't speak English, unchanged by modern life. They asked him, Rupche, you know, now you're such an elder, you've outlived so many of your colleagues. What's the most important thing? Do you have like one simple thing to tell us? Actually, it was one of my American Canadian Lama friends asked him, just so you get a picture of who's asking a learned person that knows a lot of, about these things already. Rinpoche, what's you know, the most important thing? And Rinpoche said, just keep going. <laughs> just keep going on the path. That's the most important thing. So there it is. But of course, how and when, and occasionally we wonder why, what are we getting out of it? Those are good questions for certain times, not when we're sitting and doing sky gazing, but of course, evaluating our progress and whether our life is getting better or worse is important to keep an eye on as we proceed doing anything, right? Especially if we talk about ratcheting it up and really going for it. We should, you know, not just try to get to the top of the ladder as fast as we can, but see if it's the ladder's leaning on the correct wall where we're going and why and how and with who and what are the results. Or if we're becoming worse, more proud, more dogmatic through being part of some tradition or religion. So the Bodhisattva practices these virtues externally, behaviorally, internally, at the level of attitude and secretly being in the convergence spot where it's all included in Rigpa or, or Awareness with a capital A. The ultimate generosity is not just giving stuff, food, money, medicine, or help, but it's the wisdom of Dharma, as it says in the scriptures. So it all converges in Rigpa or Rigpa practice. The ultimate purity is the innate purity, not just pure as opposed to impure or legal versus illegal behavior outwardly but innerly, and so on. We can go through the outer, inner, and secret levels of the paramitas. If you read the Buddhas as Buddhas does, that's the whole book's about. The outer, inner, and secret levels of the paramitas. Behavioral, external, consciousness, attitude, internal, and the mystical oneness, primordial level, secret. But what I want to talk about today is a little more, and you can read, and a lot of this is common knowledge, is stepping out, stepping up, bokden, enhancement, chupala jupa, entering the activity, really going for it, crazy wisdom, freedom, actualizing freedom, and so forth, which it's hard to read about, it's hard to hear about, it's, not, it's a little more tricky, it's a little more risky, 
it lends itself to people getting the spiritual diseases of like I mentioned the other day to, to him, a premature immaculation. Saying we're all, if we're all Buddhas, why do we have to do anything? It lends itself to um, other pitfalls like uh, spiritual paralysis or nihilism, nothing matters, and so forth. These are pitfalls. But I'm just going to mention it, and you can follow it up if you're into these things. Bokden, enhancement, view, meditation, action, the ground path and fruit, and then stepping up, stepping out, what's next? Beyond isms, beyond Buddhism, beyond meditation, beyond spirituality, actualizing the inherent freedom of being. The kingdom of heaven, not just praying for it and not just being an usher in the theater and seating people in that kingdom. That's fine. That's bodhisattva work. But enjoying everything as it. Like the great Naropa, Marpa Milarepa's guru in the Kagyu lineage, who went through his many years as an abbot of Nalanda University, as a spick and span pundit and master and meditator and leader and teacher, professor, abbot. And then he had a dream of a dakini who told him that that was all very well and good, but his real master was the wild-eyed yogi Tilopa who lived under the bridge in Calcutta, living on the awful, thrown away by the fishermen. In other words, a homeless yogi. And Naropa gave up everything, and he and he left his great prestigious tenured abbotship at Nalanda. This is history. And he went and sought that master. And along the way, he was accosted by the sight of a hag, a crone, ugly, disgusting, filthy, leprous, beggar, ancient woman along the dusty path. And he was a spick and span monk walking along some proudly Brahmin family who wouldn't, doesn't touch meat women, food prepared by untouchables, and so on. And there was the image of everything that he was impure in his entire upbringing. And he consorted with her, and that was his great transformation into a Mahamudra master. She was really Vajrayogini, the Dakini incarnate. So that's stepping up and stepping out of being a pure Brahmin in the caste system in which there were untouchables and, you know, I won't use the N-word, and the high white people with their white foods and their politically incorrect hierarchy, the horrific caste system which still goes on now, but still we have the class system and other things here in our own country and in our own judgmental minds. So this is the outrageous, crazy wisdom of going beyond risking everything, throwing away everything he'd worked his whole life for. <clears throat> he might get leprosy. Of course, breaking his vows of celibacy, need I mention, and touching and sleeping and rolling around in the, in the, the mud with the, the leprous hag who liberated him from such concepts and pointed him. She was Naropa's sister, pointed him, a Tilopa's sister, pointed him to where the, the unfindable, you know, no no email address, no mailing address, no phone number. Yogi was living like a homeless under a bridge in Calcutta. And then he went and, and still he wasn't done. Tilopa put him through the horrible, the travails and many impossible tasks where he got beaten almost to death and other things. It's the symbol of what one needs to go through to really go beyond and be a master, a siddha a master, get all the spiritual powers and accomplishments, not just feel better, get wellness and mental health. And fi until finally, the crazy, red-eyed, wild-eyed Tilopa kicked Naropa. I mean, Naropa was kneeling in front of him, getting, I don't know what kind of crazy teachings. We shouldn't say kicked. The book says something like, he hit Naropa in the face with his filthy, dusty sandal. And Naropa awoke. He awoke. His, he, he realized Mahamudra, that his mind was Buddha mind, was no different than Tilopa's mind. And that 
that head break, that jaw breaker, that head breaking kick in the face, it's still reverberating down to us today through the whole Kagyu lineage and many of the masters of today who one would know about, like the Karmapa, Trungpa Rinpoche, the founder of Shambhala and Naropa, Kala Rinpoche, and all of them a thousand years later. That's stepping up, stepping out, taking it to the next level, not just meditating a few minutes or hours longer or going to a longer <coughs> retreat. Of course, today, notwithstanding the various games that masters do play, we really can't kick people in the face or hit them without serious litigation and other problems much as we might want to. No, we don't really want to, much as they might need it. <laughs> but there are other means, you know, other... <laughs> it's still possible. Like, the jewel cutter knows where to tap on the jewel to open it up and reveal its facets, not just hitting it with a hammer, ruining the diamond or the ruby emerald. We can see where the... Vi we Masters see where the vital flaws and can tap on that with their pithy instructions or other things, pointing to the sky in the symbolic lineage, not just using words, and other things, mind-to-mind, -mind, heart heart-to-heart, transmission, spiritual resuscitation, like mouth-to-mouth, heart-to-heart, spiritual resuscitation in direct transmission lineage. So that's where notions of which Buddhist pioneers, outrageous teachers like Chuggim Trungpa and others talk about this outrageous, crazy wisdom beyond the Buddhism, as, as Namkar Nobu says, beyond this planet, out of this world might be the right translation for us to understand this, not just within the rational framework of our nice, humanistic, probably mostly green, mostly progressive, liberal mentality, you know, look around a white, upper-middle-path mentality. The phoenix arising from the ashes, etc. So that's Bogdan, enhancement, or stepping out, stepping up, stepping out. And Ladawa, literally crossing over, or, or the narrow pass. I see Keith Dowman in his recent newest book is translating it as consummation or something. I don't know, or total realization. That's fine. But what it really means is like going beyond here and now. Going beyond here going beyond now, being beyond, not going anywhere. That's the narrow pass. That's the needle. A rich man can't get through there, as Jesus said, because too much stuff, rich in ideas, rich in extra baggage. How to get from here to totally here, that's the needle. That's the narrow pass in the mount high mountains that we can't think our way through. The mind is not the right tool for that. Naked awareness, pure presence, Rikpa, that's the way. Beyond duality, direct access, etc. So that's a little bit more like advanced Dzogchen or that's the view meditation, action, and results. This is in the results or fruition category, not just the action where we still think about getting there on the path, the bodhisattva virtues and all. But the result, outrageous, crazy wisdom, more on the wise side than the crazy side, as the Dalai Lama said, should be emphasized. So I see the time is running. I just want to cover some things, basic and also a new, slightly newish material. Any questions, please? We're sharing. It's good we have a nice, young, and energetic Dakini Mike Hopper, isn't it? Isn't Judy doing a great job every morning at the 7 o'clock yoga? Tibetan Energy Art. Thank you, Judy. Judy should get a gong for that, don't you think? Three gongs? Does the first one count? Thank you, Judy. You're a beauty. Um, I actually have uh, two questions, but I'll try yes. to make them quick. So the first is, um, you know, trying to 
to practice Dharma within my life, um, especially as a young person living in New York and a, a student at business school. Uh, there is a very uh, hedonistic lifestyle that is actively encouraged by my peers. And uh, <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah, I know. I know. Who knew? Uh, and, uh, and, and trying to, trying to practice moderation in that. Uh, uh, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, sometimes I even find myself lying to people. Like if they ask, oh, when did you leave last night? I didn't see you. I'll say, oh, you know, it was yeah. so crazy. I don't even remember. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you mean rather than saying I left early? Yeah, rather than saying yeah. I, I left early. Because I, I had know, enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's lying and there's lying. You know, that's like they call a little white one. I don't know. I'm not such an absolutist, so I won't, you know, yeah. exclude a little of that from the skillful means of the path. But it's a slippery slope with rationalizations and lying. But as I've said here, self-deception is really the issue. So if you're very honest with yourself, there's nothing wrong with a little, you know, there could be harder questions. Now you're a young person, as you say. But, you know, soon you might be not so young and your wife or your husband or somebody will say, oh, am I getting fatter? How do I look in this new, in my, in this dress for the wedding? Yes. And total disclosure is not necessarily required. Yeah. Keep going. Um, so uh, anyway. Oh yeah, and, and the. Uh, you're not the first person to struggle with the environment that they're in that may or may not feel conducive to what we're talking about, or really, more importantly, what you are hoping to, you know, accomplish or practice. So, if it's not the hedonistic young people's world of whatever, I don't know. You're wearing a Columbia shirt, maybe Columbia, but whatever. Business school, even. That sounds bad, but, you know, I mean, you know, joking, worldly, you know, whatever. But, I mean, there are the people that, you know, what do I do when I go home to my five kids? And my, you know, mother-in-law that lives with us who, you know, is, whatever, sick, <laughs> crippled, Alzheimer, hates me, you know. So, it, it's really always the same. It's like, who's doing what around here? Do you have the agency? Or not. Who's responsible? Are you the victim or are you going to be the master? Or, you know, in between. Remember what I said about the ten parameters? Like, it also, it's not just meditation all the time. It also includes resolve and skillful means. It's, you know, and patient forbearance. It's a, it's a ten-spoked wheel. So, not just, I can't meditate there because nobody else is, but... Maybe you have your own resolve, or, you know, I don't know. Maybe you have some other interests that's different than your roommate or your friend. And that may not be easy to pursue either, but somehow you find a way to, right? We're not talking about lying now, you know, we're just talking about growing up. Yeah. And like being autonomous within interdependence, not just being independent. Teenage ideas of independence are just like halfway. Autonomy, finding autonomy within interdependence, within relationships. Or resting in the view, in you know, in any situation or practice or encounter, and not self-consciously sitting there and closing your eyes and going ah when you're arguing with your I don't know who your your thesis advisor, your roommate, your partner, but you know, the view is a little more subtle, and also sharpening the awareness helps, so it's processing more quickly, not thinking more fast, sharp processing. So you have more mind moments between stimulus and response to decide how, when, and if to respond, not just blindly react. And also, you're at Columbia. There's an unbelievable amount of spiritual activity, Buddhist activity, Tibetan Buddhist activity there and around there. Do I need to tell you? I'm sure you're aware yeah. of it. Bob Thurman. Bob Thurman and other people and Tibet House, and we all teach in New York, and we were sitting in New York, everybody. There's a lot of places in New York you could go anytime and do anything. So kindred spirits. So your, your horrible, hedonistic, you know, roommates and friends and business, whatever they are, students, business school students, are not the only people in the environment. That's where the Sangha comes in. And also, you know, they have their beautiful sides. That's why you, they're your friends. So, you know. 
It's you do. Relate yeah, to them. No problem. Yeah. And it's a challenge. Yeah, it is. Like anywhere else, step by step through the snowy Himalayas, with or without all the perfect tools one might imagine. So that's helpful. Yeah, it is. Um, also, the, the second question I had um, is, is on the, the business front. Um, and especially as someone, it sounds like you've, you've gone through a lot of traditions. Um, what has been your experience with advertising? Uh, because certainly, I mean, there have been, <laughs> I've run into you know, a lot of schmucks out there who, who get the advertising right and not much else. Uh, and uh, maybe, maybe the latter. Um, you know, because I mean, like, you know, you, you write books and you, you have those books out there. And uh, I mean, that's, that's more than some people would do. Yeah, uh, right. Is that advertising? I think to, yeah, there is. I mean, there's more like publicizing the books and right, ads yeah. that's, and marketing. That's the advertising part. Yeah. But go on. I'm listening. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, there are plenty of schmucks in every, you know, walk of life, probably. Yeah. I mean, schmucks are in the eye of the beholder, but that's another story. We've already handled, talked a lot about that. Projection, subjectivity, interpretation. But um, are you saying there's plenty of schmuck-like spiritual teachers who advertise a lot? Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to comment on us, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I like write, I write and teach. I've been writing my whole life. I like, you know, and it's a seamless hole for me, yeah. writing, teaching, and like some form of spiritual social activism, trying to bring these things forth in the world to contribute to the world, a better world, and bring Buddhism to the West, and specifically Dzogchen in the West as part of Western Dharma. So when you put out a book, then somebody publishes it and advertises it and you go around and you do certain things with the media and, and it's a middle way and everybody has to decide differently joseph goldstein doesn't write that much he doesn't go on that you know he doesn't advertise much but his center does a certain amount of advertising and then at the other end of the spectrum there are some i don't know who you want to pick on who advertise a lot and go around a lot so just like artists yeah some very good artists advertise a lot, and some, you know, very bad artists advertise and self-promote a lot. So what are you really asking? You're in the business school? No, there's nothing wrong with advertising. I mean, what does that mean? You know, it's said Madison Avenue, like it's a unequivocally bad. No. Business is not bad. Politics, even, is not bad. What's your, what's your real question? Hey, well, it, I mean, I mean, are we talking about virtual advertising, or we're talking about your path? Like, are you heading in the advertising and marketing direction well, I, I through am. your business school career? Yeah, and I. Well, so come and volunteer for us. That's my answer. <laughs> we need some help to help people find out and, about this great, low-cost, very ecumenical thing that we do here regularly, year in and year out. So we can keep going, bringing the Dharma to the West and making it a genuine, transformative you know, beautiful, non-exploitative dharma. Not like some of the schmucks around, I won't mention. Since you have some in mind, you know, I do too. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to do our best here. It's hard to do it alone. Yeah. So, if you must know, my literary agent and, and editor are coming to lunch today as I'm just finishing my new book on co-meditations. It's coming out May 1st. And um, one of them is in the room. I won't point it out. To, I don't. I want to protect the guilty. <laughs> you know. And they want me to hire a publicist to publicize the book, and I'm going to. I mean, that's called business life. That's part of my work. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess it's just that, like, you know, even even when you have something to deliver it can look just the same as, as the people who don't have anything. Yeah, to it does sometimes. So that's why we need to cultivate, back to our usual subject about cultivating clarity and discrimination and discernment and intelligence and not being oversimplistic or just black and white thinking or rush to judgment. There's probably good advertising, bad advertising, and all kinds in between. Just like there's, to use your word, there's schmucks in the pulpit 
and there's saints in the pulpit and everything in between. And also probably none is complete, a whole, you know, whatever the word is, you know. Right. One thing, unequivocally schmuck, unequivocally saint. All right, thank you. So I'm sure there are moles on Madison Avenue who are very much promoting the humanistic values of some wonderful thing or other, not just trying to get rich quick or retire or deceive people with deceptive advertising and subliminal messages to, I don't know what, addict people. There's probably moles there, just like there are in every other walk of life. Bodhisattvas, whatever you want to call them. Questions? Right livelihood, as you know, since you're a smart guy, you have experience with Buddhism, is the fifth step on the Eightfold Path, right? So what is right livelihood? Like wise vocation, finding your true work, finding a work that grows you, doesn't stunt you. Not just finding something that helps others. Like we don't all have to be Mother Teresa or in the, what do they call it, the helping professions. But, of course, non-harming and others you know, goes along with that. But isn't it interesting that Buddha himself considered right livelihood one of the eight steps equal to mindfulness, concentration, ethical self-discipline, etc. Very interesting. Also, we're lay people. Look around. I don't see any monks or nuns here. So livelihood, just like re <laughs> relationship. You're a retired corporate executive. Relationship and mother, relationships are a very important part of our life. <laughs> Questions? You're yes. Hi. Can you hear me? It's, yes. Uh, I want to thank you very much for all the teachings you've given us this week. I came to this retreat wide open. And I have taken these teachings and I've cooked them all week. And I've come up with a question. Who am I? 74 years ago, I was given the name Douglas. Later in life, someone called me Swan. I thought, what's in a name? That really doesn't define who I am. The only thing that I can come up with is consciousness and awareness, and that's so big I can't wrap my head around it. So I ask That's who you are. So big that you can't wrap your head around it, but also no need to. That is your real head. You don't have to wrap your little you know, pinhead around that. That's your real head. Why identify with our pinhead? We're like the coneheads, but it's a fake. You know, it's, a, it's like a prosthetic. It's like a mask we forgot we donned because we're too big. You can't walk around being one all the time. You have to, you know, fit in at home, at the dinner table, at class, professionally, whatever. You don't always have to be fit into the square hole or the round hole, but you can't walk around just, you know, being one and divine and in exalted oneness all the time. There's also the relationships of life and roles we play. So, yes, can't wrap our head around. That's why I, I'm glad you brought up this question. That's why we have the self-inquiry question, which I mentioned during the week about looking into who or what is experiencing, who am I, who's on first, the notion of identity. It's a great timeless self-inquiry or like spiritual inquiry practice. As Ramana Maharshi, the modern promulgator of this self-inquiry question, who am I, said, when you realize who am I, you realize what is God and what is man. Woman, I don't know, but that's what he said. What is God and what is man? You with me? So it's not a small question. It doesn't afford of an easy conceptual or, you know, wor answering words. And yet, you know, the difference between being a teenager in an identity crisis, however long that lasts, and finding yourself. Like you wish your children to find themselves and then you see that they do. It's hard to define what that means, but it's a kind of a definite 
perhaps gradual, but you know, maturation and, and shift those, kind of getting over the hump, hitting their stride. So some people would agree exactly literally whatever you just said, consciousness and something. Awareness. Satchitadanda in the ancient Upanishads of India. That we are Satchit Ananda, truth, conscious, bliss. Not just the head, an IQ, a personality, a name, a gender-based body, etc. Satchit Ananda. Truth, consciousness, bliss, that's our nature. That's what the ancient Hindu scripture says. Last question. Thank you, Swani. Thank you. I like your name, Swan. Swani. It's so graceful and beautiful, like you. Last question. Yes. I have to explain my question a little bit. So Try to make it short, please. Maybe I shouldn't ask. Come on. Get to your question. Okay, it's, uh, for example, you get these moments of wake, of awareness, you say catch, so you wake. But uh, what exactly is that supposed to be? Because for me, that, that wake, I notice, I'm like, hey, I'm awake now, that's interesting. I was just, I walked all the way over there and I wasn't there. Then I realize I'm here, but my here is very, uh, the one sense or maybe two senses, just the seeing and the mind. But then there's other senses. For example, when you eat, you're, you're there, and you're there with the taste sense. But uh, is awareness supposed to be all six senses? Yes, very good. You nailed it. Buddhist psychology or Abhidharma analyzes it that there's six senses. Six senses, they're like gates or doors or something. And there's six consciousnesses, meaning there's consciousness that processes or relates to each of the six senses. So they're not really, it's not like there's six monkeys in there. So there's the visual sense and the auditory sense and the olfactory sense and, the, you know, whatever. And then there's the mental sense, which, you know, like the eye, the, the visual sense sees forms. The auditory sense here, the auditory consciousness hears sounds. The mental consciousness perceives thoughts and related things, not just thoughts, moods, consciousness, and so on. So consciousness is the primary, and then each of the senses is like a tentacle or a, you know, a lamp or a gate, however you imagine things coming in, or it's reaching out. It's like scanning, like sonar or radar. But... Um... So that's why consciousness is the active ingredient. Even if, you know, somebody's blind or deaf, they can still be wise, learned, awakened, enlightened. Like Helen Keller with all of her handicaps. Such a brilliant, quote, mind and a great altruistic heart. So not being handicapped with having a full uh, array of the six senses, am I uh, have a, a limited awareness when I don't, when I, for example, only am aware of sight, even though, uh, for example, right now, if I could go aware to my elbow and feel my elbow, my hand, and my whole body, there's so many things that we're not aware of unless we focus on it. Is it supposed to right. be all-encompassing awareness? or is It, it is all-encompassing awareness, but it, it's a matter more in the moment practical as to what your focus, attention is on. It's like the back burner, and you might have all six burners going, and you know, pot bubbling on each of them while you cook dinner. It's just a metaphor. But you might have the front burner and the back burner, and the front burner you're more working on. You're stirring the wok fried vegetables, whatever, sauteing the vegetables on the front burner, while on the back burner, the brown rice, I know I'm dating myself, the brown rice is, is simmering. So while you're seeing, while you're, what have you just said? You know, there are, the other senses are there. They might even be active, but most of your, your attention is not, you know, you're not that aware of your thoughts, let's say, while you're, um, I don't know, seeing something fascinating. 
you're not that aware of the sounds while you're seeing something fascinating. Or maybe you're aware of the music and the, vi the visuals in the movie, but you're not so aware of the body sensations while you're involved in the fascination of those two senses. You know what I'm saying? So Buddha said that, and this is just, you know, a saying, I don't know, it would be worth studying this neuroscientifically even today, that the mind can only hold one thought at a time. So if you move your attention, you're really, like, if you have a pain and you move your attention, it would be very hard to say that you feel the pain if you move your attention to another object of attention. Thus, the breathing exercises of natural childbirth and other techniques move your attention. Then it's very hard to say that something is afflicting you at that moment, you know, that there's a pain if you're not aware of it. You with me? So... It's well known and it's been well explained about the doors of perception that if they weren't somewhat veiled or modulated, that we'd be overwhelmed by the sensory data. Maybe attend carefully to the quick stir-fry vegetables if everything's happening at once on, the, on the, that one burner. So I hope that's helpful. Ask one more question. Sure. You're on, to the, you're on the right direction about the awareness and the attention, so don't, you don't have to theorize it too much. But, of course, these things can be studied also. There's a lot of information about this kind of thing. Awareness and attention and focus and where you are. You know, like you, that was the beginning of your question. Where am I when I'm eating and I forget that I'm, I don't know, whatever you say, walking or vice versa. So a lot of it is about the forgetting and the remembering, where you're attending to which conscious, which gate of consciousness you're attending to, or what activity. Like while you're driving, if you forget that you're driving and you're too much listening to the music or to whoever's talking to you in the back seat, you have an accident, because while you're driving, you know, that has to be front burner. It's a, it's a slightly dangerous activity, right? You have to be watching and, you know, paying attention, mostly the attention on that. Last question, time's running out. So the awareness that you're always talking about is, is just those one or two senses on the front burner? It's really this moment, what's happening, what arises right now, and the rest we But there's add, more than add. one thing happening at this moment right yes. now. Yes. But how many of that do you notice? That's the question. And the one I notice, when I do <clears throat> notice, that's awareness? Even if it's a limited, maybe... That's example, the pro that's, it sounds like perception, but that's, a, that's the perce awareness perceiving a sound. You need to think more about it, but let me give you the Buddhist adage. Buddha said, in hearing, there is just hearing. No one hearing it and nothing to listen to. In seeing, there's just seeing. No one seeing it, nothing to see. So the point is, it's a subject-object interaction. The three pieces have to be there. And <clears throat> if you say, I am seeing it, you're adding on <clears throat> that there's a monkey looking out through the window seeing a tree. Where's the monkey? In seeing, there's just seeing. In that moment of bare, naked perception, that's awareness. There's no, <clears throat> there's no coagulated, separate you who is aware. That gets added on by your memory and <clears throat> sense of identity. That's the theory. Anyway, that's why we practice being so in the moment that we're not conditioned by past or future. Nowness awareness is the ultimate therapy. I always say this. There's no conditioning in the sharpest moment of moment. There's no previous and, and future. There's no conditioning. That's naked awareness. That's not me being aware of things. That's many mind moments down the road. Thank you all. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? 
Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.